Our scripture lesson for the sermon today, as we're doing preparation for communion next week, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. This was written by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, every word on the page is that which the Holy Spirit intended to be there. And so we can with confidence know that we are reading the very word of the living God. And so let us tend, let us attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word. 2 Corinthians 13 verses 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Well, the last time that we were preparing to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, for our preparation service, I preached on the topic of the Word of God uh, relative to the first query of the Reformed Presbyterian Covenant of Communicant Membership. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God? the only infallible rule for faith and life. Well, today as we're preparing to observe the sacraments next week, next Lord's Day, I want you to consider the second of the questions, the second query of the covenant of communicant membership, that second covenant commitment you made as you joined a Reformed Presbyterian church. Namely, do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Scriptures. Now, even if you were not a communicant member of an RP church, uh, what I'm preaching about today is a basic tenet of the Christian faith. All true Christians believe the things about God that I'm about to explain. Uh, key to our understanding of what we promise in that Covenant, in that particular query, is the phrase, as revealed in the scriptures. Now, people have all sorts of ideas. There's a multitude of ideas about the nature of God. But the Holy Scriptures reveal some specific things. You know, if you talk to people at random about God, people will give you all kinds of ideas they have, what they think about God, but we want to be thinking about God, what God thinks. We want to know what God says about who he is. We must not reject or undermine the things that he's revealed in Scripture, or else we may be found proclaiming a false God. I remember hearing a a preacher talk about how he uh, was discussing uh, God's justice with a woman, and she said, well, my God would never send anyone to hell. And his answer to that was, well, your God can't, because that God doesn't exist. 
We want to know that what we believe about God is what God has said about who He is. We won't have time today to consider everything that the Bible has to say about even the things that are covered just in that short query that we answer in the affirmative to become members, communicant members of the church. But I do want you to see that what Scripture teaches about the nature of God is, uh, is several things. First, I want to mention what it's not, and then the one thing that it particularly is uh, as we relate to this question. It is not a radical monism or unitarianism. I'll explain these terms as we go through the, the sermon. It's not tritheism. It's not Arianism. It's not modalism. It's Trinitarianism. I'll explain those terms briefly as we go, but Trinitarianism is the understanding that God is triune in nature. That is, that he is one God who exists in three persons. These persons are distinct from one another in their personhood, but are in their essence one and the same God. Now let me say before we move on, if you have ever found this doctrine confusing, you've ever been a little unclear on it, uh, that doesn't mean that you're an unbeliever. It is a problem when one insists that a view other than the truths revealed in Scripture would be the truth. Well, in that case, that person would be worshiping or proclaiming a false god. And, of course, churches, institutions, let's say churches in air quotes there, uh, which reject the doctrine of the Trinity are actually theological cults. So we might think of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, for example, who both reject the doctrine of the Trinity. There are many other things that we can say uh, God is or is not based on the Scriptures, uh, and I uh, might touch on a few as we go, but I'll be concentrating on the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, the three-in-oneness of God, and point out some problematic ways in which people have interpreted uh, the Bible and what it says about those things. Uh, so we'll deal today with both the fact that there is one God, one living and true God, and that he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course our only real application, uh, exhortation, will be believe the God who reveals himself in Scripture. So let's first handle the, the first clause of the vow. Do you believe in the one living and true God? Why would we expect a Christian to believe in the one living and true God? Well, that might seem like a no-brainer to you, but we, of course, need to understand this according to the Scriptures, as we say in that vow. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I've mentioned to you many times before that the, the common word that we find for God, that we translate as God, G-O-D, uh, in uh, the Old Testament with a capital G, uh, as it's applied to the God of Israel, it's actually a plural noun. It's the word Elohim, and that im at the end is, makes it a masculine plural noun. In many contexts, it would actually mean gods with an S on the end, who would say it. 
And in those contexts, it might refer to heavenly beings, the ones we commonly call angels, whether the holy angels or fallen angels, or uh, it could refer to the false gods, the idols of the nations, uh, which on the one hand are mere idols, we just sang in Psalm 96, but the demons, Paul says, like to pretend to be them. Paul says when the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. So the gods of the nations, so on the one hand we could say that maybe Zeus or, or Odin, uh, these are not real beings in and of themselves as they're imagined in the mythologies of various people groups, but uh, Satan and his minions are happy to pretend to be those beings and uh, maybe uh, influence people to believe in them. But in Hebrew... When a plural noun is the subject of a sentence, but the verb is conjugated to the singular, or there's something else around it that indicates that it's to be understood as singular, even though it's got a plural ending there, that indicates that that thing is the biggest of that category. The most obvious other example of this is the behemoth that you read about in Job. The O-T-H at the end makes that a feminine plural noun. Uh, Literally, behemoth means cattle or big land animals. But when it's used to refer to a singular creature the plural noun with a singular verb, for example, it means the biggest land animal. Well, similarly, when we see Elohim, we might recognize that in Hebrew there there are many spiritual beings who are called collectively Elohim, but one is the greatest spiritual being. But more than that, what we find in Scripture, it's not just that there are a whole bunch of of gods with a little g, and then one who's just bigger than them. He's not just one who's a little bit stronger than the others. He's actually quite different. For one thing, he's infinite. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. Psalm one forty five three. His greatness is unsearchable. Why is it unsearchable? Because it. He's too big. There's no end to him. We see that he's eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Nothing else that we would call Elohim in the Old Testament uh, could possibly uh, be infinite like that and eternal like that, outside of time, not subject to time. In fact, he is self-existent. His very name, as he reveals himself to Moses, Yahweh, In Exodus 3.14, he calls himself, I am who I am, and simply I am. The name Yahweh is a variant form of the verb to be. When the Lord speaks of himself in the first person, he says, I am. You shall say, say, Moses, that I am sent you. Uh, When he tells Israel what to call him, he reveals the name of Yahweh, or some translators, Jehovah. Though there's a whole history as to why that was that pronunciation was used and why it's probably certainly not the way that it would have been said in ancient Hebrew. But we might read that name as something like he who was, is, and shall be, or just being itself. When we say that the Lord is the living and true God, we're affirming that he, on the one hand, is not a vain idol, and on the other hand, is self-existent. Psalm 96.5, for the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord Yahweh made the heavens. 
any other beings called Elohim or Benai Elohim as the sons of God in Scripture are created beings, but he is the uncreated creator. He's a totally different category to himself in that sense. We affirm indeed that he, when we say as the living God, that he is in fact life itself. He alone is self-existent. All other things depend on him. So we read in Hebrews, he, in fact, in the person of Christ, upholds everything by the word of his power. If he didn't at every moment cause everything to continue existing, we would cease to exist. The whole universe would cease to exist. Everything else depends on Yahweh, on the Lord, for its existence. They were made by him. They exist by a sustaining power. And so we affirm he is the living and true God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And so we affirm that scripture teaches there is only one living and true God. One Lord who is God over all who alone is to be worshipped. But in affirming that oneness of God, we do not accept what we might call a radical monism or Unitarianism about his nature. What I mean by that is that the Bible clearly teaches there is one God who is self-existent. He is one being. But he does not teach in Scripture the monism of Islam, for example, or of the Unitarians, which would say that God is one person. Rather, we are compelled by Scripture to understand that the one God exists in three persons. So we vow also that we believe this one living and true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, let's consider a couple things. A, that each of these persons is one and the same God. And B, that each person is distinct from the other. So there's a distinction between them, so that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and so on. But they are one and the same God. Now this is, the reason that people wrestle with this, the reason people have confusion about this, uh, is because there's nothing else like that. You can't point to anything in creation that is exactly three in one, that is one being but distinct in personhood. Now some will object to this doctrine and say, well, you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. But there are lots of theological concepts that are taught in Scripture for which we use words as shorthand for those concepts. They don't, the words don't directly appear in Scripture, but we're using the word as a summary of a concept found in Scripture. So they describe or summarize the Bible's teaching on a particular topic topic accurately. Uh, You won't find the expression regulative principle, for example. There's no scripture that says regulative principle of worship. But you can find many scriptures that teach that principle. And we just use that expression to summarize what those scriptures teach. And in case someone would be listening to this sermon and reject the regulative principle of worship because you... I can't find that word, those words in the Bible. Uh, if you don't believe the regulative principle of worship, then what you do believe is a normative principle of worship, and you can't find that expression in the Bible either. <laughs> but it's used to summarize what people believe the Bible teaches. As with the regulative principle, you can find a plethora 
just a multitude of scriptures which teach God is a triune being. Indeed, as we look at what the scriptures teach about God's personhood and being, we find that the Trinity is the only way to understand the teaching of certain passages of Scripture without forcing them to contradict other passages of Scripture. So if we understand that Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore we know that God can't contradict himself because God is true, well then we have to understand those Scriptures in a way that that they work together. (coughs) So we neither teach Unitarianism, that there is uh, one God who is one person, nor do we teach tritheism, that there are three gods. What we teach is that there is one God who exists in three persons. So uh, how do we know there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, that each of these is one and the same God? Well, no one disputes that the person whom Jesus regularly calls Father is the Lord God, is Yahweh. That's obvious. That's so obvious that the Apostle Paul often simply says God when he's referring to the Father, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 1, 3 and Ephesians 1, 3, Paul calls him God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as does Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3. Nobody disputes that. But what some have disputed is that the Son is the same God in the same way. But we do find in Scripture that we're compelled to believe that the Son is one and the same God with the Father. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me just stop there. Note that how can he be God and be with God at the same time? Now, the ancient Aryan heretics said, well, he was a God. But that's actually... Uh, contradicted by the next few verses, the next couple of verses here. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So notice that nothing was made without him that was made. So what the ancient Aryans and the modern Jehovah's Witnesses would teach is that uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, made the Son... And then he made everything else. But John says that there was nothing that was made that wasn't made by him. If he, if he had been made, he didn't make himself. Right? So uh, that's a logical impossibility. Uh, so we're left with understanding that he is one and the same God with the Father. Notice this, this word could not have been created because he made everything that was made. In John 1 verse 14, John states that this word took on human nature. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then in verse 18, he clearly calls him the Son. So we know that the word spoken of there at the beginning of John 1 is the very same person that we also call the Son, God the Son. So Jesus, who is the Word, the Son of God incarnate, speaks of his oneness with the Father. So we know that there is a unity in the Godhead. John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Now, in case we think that that has some other meaning than to say that they're the same being. We know that the Jews who heard Jesus say that in John 10 picked up stones to stone him with because they knew he was saying he was equal with God. And they thought that was blasphemy because they couldn't believe that he actually could be one and the same God 
with the Father. Not that they couldn't believe, by the way, as many have mistakenly thought, that there could be multiple personhood in the Godhead. It was commonly understood by the rabbis, by many rabbis, before the time of Christ, that there was a multiplicity somehow to the Godhead, because they knew that in the Old Testament there was the Lord and there was the angel of the Lord who was sent by the Lord, but who was the Lord at the same time. So they knew there had to be something going on in the Godhead that was complex there because there was someone who is sent and someone who's doing the sending and those both of those someones were the same God. So it wasn't that they thought that Jesus or that there couldn't be as someone an angel of the Lord sent by God who was God at the same time, but they thought it was blasphemy for Jesus this man to be claiming that he was God. But he was confirmed as telling the truth about God by his miracles and ultimately by his resurrection. That's why in Romans 1, Paul says that he was displayed or he was shown to be the Son of God by his resurrection. In Matthew 9, 6, he caused a paralytic to walk, saying that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So he proved that he had authority that belongs to God to forgive sins by the resurrection, or by the raising up of this man, not resurrected, but the uh, giving the ability of man to walk. He did show through resurrection of various people, and ultimately Lazarus, that he was God himself. Which, by the way, is when we're told that many of the Pharisees began to believe in Jesus. Well, his many I am statements, such as that in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, tells us that he is one and the same God with the Father. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. Indeed, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that we have to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and that shows that it's a confirmation that he was telling the truth. Well, Paul uses there in Romans 10.9 the word kurios, the word Lord, to describe what we have to call Jesus. Well, then just a few verses later in Romans 10.13, he explains that we confess with our mouth. Why is it that we're saved when we confess that Jesus is Lord? He says, well, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you're saved by saying Jesus is Lord, and meaning it, believing it in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And because you are saved if you call upon the name of the Lord, and he uses that very same word, kurios, there. Well, that's a translation of Joel 2.32, which says, whoever calls on Yahweh shall be saved. So when you're calling on Jesus, you're calling on Yahweh. In Revelation 2.8, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, the Lord calls himself the first and the last. So either Jesus is the Lord or he's blaspheming. And if he were a created being, he couldn't claim to be the first. Nor the last. Because his existence would be depending on the existence of the Lord God. No. He's not a created being. He is the one true God. So that, uh, Jesus prays in in John 17.5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And in Isaiah 42.8, the Lord says, My glory I will give to no other. So either Jesus is the same Lord, or he doesn't have a claim on that glory. 
So Jesus, the Word of God, God the Son, is one and the same God with the Father. So he is Yahweh. That's clearly established in Scripture. We can't get around it. So that defeats Arianism and the Jehovah's Witnesses that I mentioned, who say that the Son was created, and he's something other than in his being than the Father. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is one and the same God. In Isaiah 63.10, to which Paul alludes in Ephesians 4.30, we see that the Holy Spirit is not simply an aspect of God, but he is a person, because we see that he can be grieved. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says to a man who sought credit for an act of charity that he didn't actually commit, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one and the same God. Yahweh is the Father, Yahweh is the Son, and Yahweh is the Holy Spirit. So if one of these persons does something, God did it. At the same time, if one of those persons does something, it doesn't necessarily mean that the other two did it. There's a distinction between each of those persons and the others. The Son, for example, was sent by the Father. Jesus says, I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. He's even called the apostle, literally the sent one, and high priest of our confession in Hebrews 3.1. So Jesus is both Yahweh and is sent by Yahweh. The Son alone became flesh and dwelt among us. We can't say in any sense that the Father took on human nature or the Holy Spirit took on human nature. We can say God took on human nature because God the Son took on human nature. And he died and he rose again in that nature. Not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Son. There's no way in which we can say that the Holy Spirit or the Father was hanging on the cross. It was the person of the Son in his human nature who was hanging on the cross. Similarly, the Holy Spirit is God and is also sent by God like the Son is. John 14, 26, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. And then in John 15, 26, he calls the Spirit the Helper whom I shall send to you from the Father. So uh, this is how we understand that the technical term for this is the economy of the Godhead. And all that means is how they uh, interwork uh, between one another. What is the household law of the Godhead? That's literally what economy means. In which we see that the Father sends the Son and the Spirit proceeds from the Son and the Father. The Son is eternally begotten. The Holy Spirit proceeds. Those are some of the distinctions that we find in Scripture about their nature as one God in three persons. It was the Holy Spirit, not the Son or the Father, who came upon the worshippers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Father and Son can be said to be present by their union with the Holy Spirit, but it was the Holy Spirit's work. We see these three present and distinct 
at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew three sixteen through seventeen. I think in your printed uh, outlines, I have three thirteen. That should say three sixteen and seventeen. When Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, the Father declares, "This is my beloved Son." We we see the clear presence of all three persons of the Godhead. But we also see their distinction. It's the Father speaking, it's the Spirit, not the Father's descending as a dove, it's the Spirit descending as a dove. It's not the Son speaking or descending, it's the Son who was baptized and about whom uh, these words are being spoken. In Matthew twenty-eight thirteen, we see both the oneness and the distinction of the three as Jesus teaches us to baptize in the name, singular, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this oneness of God with the distinction of the three persons shows us the Bible does not teach what we call modalism. That is, God is not one person who plays three roles. This is often how it's uh, uh, mistakenly and inadequately communicated to people today. Someone will say, well, much like a man can be a son and a husband and a father at the same time, so God is a father, son, and Holy Spirit. But, you know, if I'm reading a book, you know, my mom could say, my son is reading a book. My wife could say, my husband is reading a book. And when they can speak a little more clearly, my daughters could say, daddy is reading a book. And they'd be talking about one and the same person. But when Jesus became human, we can say God became man, but we can't say the Father became man. We can't say the Holy Spirit became man, not accurately. The Bible teaches Trinitarianism. There is one God who exists in three persons. Now, these three are one in essence, but distinct in personhood. Each person is fully and truly God, so it's not like God is a pie that there's three slices of or anything like that. It's fully and truly God. Uh, one and the same God, while at the same time distinct from the others in personhood. The reason, again, that people struggle with this so much is that it, there's nothing else like it. This concept is unique. Only God is three in one in this sense. So our application today is this. What our covenant of communicant membership says, do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Scriptures? Believe the triune God. Let's pray. The Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us ever to worship and proclaim you for who you truly are, not just who we might imagine you are. Where we are confused or lacking in our understanding of what you've taught, open our minds, give us clarity of thought, that we might understand and worship you as you have revealed yourself in the scriptures. For we pray in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.